Let me invite you to turn again in your copy of God's Word uh, to the New Testament this time. Our text this morning is found on page 813 of your Pew Bibles. Uh, We are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We are looking at three accounts of three different miracles in the early ministry of Jesus uh, this morning. Uh, Just a word of reminder, we have finished the Sermon on the Mount uh, and moved into a section in Matthew's Gospel. It's just two chapters long uh, that recounts not so much teaching uh, as it does what Jesus is doing, uh, who he is healing, uh, how he is performing miracles in chapters 8 and 9. We see a little bit of sort of illustrative teaching that Jesus gives, and we see a number of miracles. We saw a couple weeks ago a a set of three miracles, and we'll see this morning uh, another set of three miracles. Uh, Last Sunday, uh, Jim preached a wonderful sermon uh, on the cost of following Jesus uh, and called uh, us to sincerity uh, in our following of Christ. And what does that uh, look like in our lives? We see a little bit of that play out now uh, as we follow along these three different miracles. So give your attention with me to the reading of God's word, Matthew, beginning in chapter 8, verse 23, and we'll go through the first eight verses of chapter 9. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And when they came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
And he rose and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, as we encounter the authority that you have given to your son this morning, I pray that you would awaken each of our hearts and we might consider how we are responding to the authority of the very son of God. Lord, if we have come this morning with bored and apathetic hearts, I ask Holy Spirit that you would shake us awake today. But if we have come beaten down and discouraged and sorrowing and guilty, I pray, oh God, you would nourish us and refresh us with the power that your son has, not, over, over, not only over this world, but over sin itself. And oh God, I pray that you would speak and address every one of us. You would lead us on the path of humble faith to find hope and encouragement and life in Christ this very hour. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, this past month, uh, I've had the privilege to officiate uh, two weddings. I don't come along that often, but when they do, uh, as a minister, it is uh, quite a busy weekend of activities, of getting ready and going Friday night and going to the events on Saturday and getting all of my lines right and all the parts right of the service, and everybody wants something a little bit different in their service, so getting everything right uh, in the order. And once the sermon is given and the vows are said and the rings are exchanged, comes that only that one moment, that one sentence. That's really the only reason I'm there in the first place. And I start by saying, by the authority vested in me, I now declare you husband and wife. It's It's like the only moment in my life that I have that level of authority, right? Uh, I'm preaching this morning. I don't have that kind of authority to actually do anything right now. I don't do anything at baptisms or the Lord's Supper or really even at funerals. But that one moment at a wedding, I show to the world how much authority I have for a split second, right? You know, we have a funny relationship with authority, don't we? Sometimes we love authority in our lives. When the authority is used to do something that we want to be done, right? Other times we can't stand authority. We want authority nowhere near us. We might want a pastor to marry us, but man, don't you get involved in my marriage. (laughs) We have a strange relationship with authority. And what we see in our text is we're not the only ones. The people before us had a strange relationship with with authority. See, this section, these three accounts are all about the authority of Jesus. And we're going to see how he shows that authority over nature, over spiritual beings, and in physical healings. He shows forth his authority, his divine nature. He has, spoiler alert, the authority of God himself. He's exercising that authority vested in him in these three miracles. And as we see the miracles, and as we lay our eyes upon Jesus, we will be led by the grace of God to respond. And how do we respond to such a display of authority? 
Well, I think these verses will answer that question. We respond in humble submission. Or to put the sermon in a sentence, it's this. The authority of Jesus displays his divine nature and demands our humble submission. The authority of Jesus displays his divine nature and demands our humble submission. What we see in each of these miracles, and there's, there's one in each in sort of the three major types of miracles, healings, uh, exorcisms, and uh, authority over nature, right? There's one of each in this little trifecta at the end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9. Each miracle raises a question about who it is that performs the miracle. Each miracle raises a question about who Jesus is. So that's the structure we're going to follow today. We're going to look at the question that each miracle raises about Jesus. So our first question, who has authority to calm storms? That's our first question. Who has authority to calm storms? This is the first nature miracle we might call it, recorded in Matthew's gospel. It is a familiar one. It appears also in Mark. We learn different details uh, of it in Mark's gospel and again in Luke. Uh, here we, we get really a, a kind of a, a shortened version of it. We read that Jesus has been ministering to, cr- to crowds. He leaves the crowds in a boat. It seems to be, I think Jim said this well last week, that Jesus is probably tired. I mean, people have been all over him. And they... they the last time they came to him two weeks ago was at night. So it's unclear how much rest uh, he is even getting. And so as he does other times, he seemingly gets into a boat to get away from the crowd. But the disciples uh, go with him. And as he goes out uh, into the Sea of Galilee, a storm hits. Now it's called the Sea of Galilee. It's not like the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, right? I mean, you can usually, depending on where you're standing, see all the way across it. I mean, they was actually known... Back then, as a lake. You could see across it, and so it's not some daunting body of water to cross, but it is susceptible to storms. Right? The lake itself is below sea level, and so it has this, these kind of sudden pressure changes. That out of nowhere come these crazy storms and wind and waves, and that seems to be what happens, that the boat is being swamped in this great storm by the waves. So the waves are crashing on the boat, and they're coming into the boat. So to be swamped is there's too much water in the boat, and the boat would sink and go down. And Matthew tells us, sort of amazingly, at the end of verse 24, but Jesus was asleep. He was so tired, maybe, that he's sleeping through the storm. The disciples don't know what to do. They wake him up, and they cry out, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Some people try to read a lot into that sentence. I don't think they're crying out for uh, healing from their sins and spiritual salvation. I think that they just want the storm to stop, right? They just want to be saved because they think they're on the verge of, of drowning. Jesus wakes up, says to them first, as the storm's still going on, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And we just think, man, I'd be afraid too, Jesus. <laughs> That's pretty scary. Small little boats, storm waves crashing upon us. And then Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, 
that even the winds and the sea obey him. When we know he's a man, he sleeps. <laughs> he takes naps in a boat. But what kind of man is this? Now, I marvel at their marveling, don't you? I mean, doesn't it seem like well, you woke him up? <laughs> you weren't, why are you surprised at what he did, right? It, but it seems to me, sort of reading into these few words, they didn't, they didn't quite know who Jesus was. They knew he had some kind of power. He's done some wonderful healings. They were out of ideas, right? They're out of options. Maybe they wanted him to steer them to safety. Maybe they needed an extra hand in bailing the water out of the boat. Uh, but they wake him up and they ask for help. But my goodness, this is not quite the help they were expecting. The man speaks a word and there's a great calm. What's the meaning of this miracle? Well, what's our question? Who has the authority to calm storms? Well, that's a pretty easy answer, isn't it? God. God has the authority to calm storms. So who is this man? Well, he's God's Messiah. He is God's Messiah. This is not the first storm in the Bible. Lots of storms in the Bible. Uh, There is one particular memorable psalm, Psalm 107, in which the psalmist names these different difficult situations people find themselves in because of their own sin. And one of those situations is sailors find themselves in the middle of a storm. Here's how the psalmist describes it. Psalm 107, beginning at verse 23. Some went down into the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. He made the storm be still, the waves of the sea were hushed. Who's doing this in Psalm 107? It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. It's the God of Israel. Who does the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 8? It is the man, apparently, Jesus. What sort of man is this? He's divine. He is the Son of God. He is God Himself who speaks and calms the storms. Now, if we look deeper, there's there's even something more going on here. Because for the Israelites, the, the chaos and and fear of the ocean was symbolic of something deeper. Usually the Israelites were generally a land-based people. Their enemies Some of them, at least, would come in boats from the sea. So they looked out at the sea as something they could not control, something that was out of their power, out of their authority. And it was a symbol of chaos. In fact, it was even the the chaos of the ocean was a symbol of violence. It was a symbol of evil. God alone could bring peace to the raging seas. It's why Jesus, I think, is described as doing what to the storm? Rebuking it. Rebuking it. And driving it back. Because he is showing that he is God's 
Messiah who has the authority to calm the storms. Now, what are we to make of the faith of these disciples? What did they know and what did they not know? I mean, Jesus, before he even calls the storm, he seems like he's rebuking them. I mean, look back at verse 26. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now, Matthew doesn't say he's rebuking them. But think about it for a second. What are the disciples afraid of? They're afraid of the same thing you would be afraid of if you were in that boat, which is drowning. That's what you'd be afraid of. That's what they're afraid of. But if they're in a boat with God's Messiah, who has come to save and redeem a people Israel from all their sin and sorrow, is that guy really going to drown in a random storm on the Sea of Galilee? No, absolutely not. If the disciples had believed that they were in the boat with the Messiah of God, they would have had no fear that that boat was going to be swamped and that they would drown. It seems like they knew they were with someone, someone powerful, someone special. But it seems like their little faith refers not to the fact that they didn't have faith, but that they didn't know who they had faith in, right? They didn't know who the object of their faith was. They just wanted a little bit of help to get out of the storm. Turns out they woke up the king of the universe. (laughs) And they marveled at what had happened. You know, last week, Jim said that sometimes we just want a teddy bear Jesus. Remember that? Sometimes we just want this kind of soft, cuddly Jesus that we can sort of take with us when we need him and kind of control him, and he you know, fits in a box. Well, I think to, to go on a, a line with a similar image, I think this text tells us sometimes we want a, a Jesus who's just like a genie in a bottle. We just kind of wake him up when we need him, and then he helps us out, and just kind of go back over there. <laughs> the question for us, I think, in this first account, is who has authority to calm the storms? It's not a genie in a bottle. It's the messianic, all-glorious and mighty king of the ages. Who is Jesus for you, friends? Is he just the helper that you want to bring along every once in a while when you need him? Or is he the king that you are ready and willing to bow at times in terrified submission because he rules the winds and the waves and the seas. Who has the authority to calm storms? It is God's messianic king. And to him, we humbly submit. But Jesus doesn't only have authority over the physical world. He also has authority over the spiritual world. And that's what our second miracle shows us. Verses 28 to 34, we see a second question. Who has authority to rebuke spirits? Who has authority to rebuke spirits? Again, let's see the miracle and then let's see what it means. The miracle itself is fairly well known. It is told somewhat differently in Luke's gospel. But here we read that Jesus comes to the other side. The storm calms down. The boat comes to the other side of The sea, uh, he comes to the country of the Gadarenes. This is a Gentile area. We know that from looking at the map. The other side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern side is the Gentile side. We know that because there's lots of pigs there. They wouldn't have herds of unclean animals in Israel. 
Jesus encounters there two demon-possessed men. They, verse 28 tells us, they come to meet him. They come out of the tombs. That's where they're living. So fierce that no one could pass that way. These men are so fierce. They're so strong. They're so powerful. They're so violent that no one can get past them. This tells us a little bit about this sort of dark idea of demon possession. These men are empowered and controlled by spiritual forces of evil. Their strength seems to be somehow supernatural or superhuman. Empowered and strengthened and violent, made violent by spiritual forces of evil. It would seem that no man in that region is fit to confront them. So they come and they approach Jesus. And they begin with a fascinating question. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? The disciples in the boat with Jesus don't seem to know who he is, but two demons coming out of the tombs know exactly who he is. Isn't that instructive? Even the demons recognize the Son of God. They know what he's there for. (laughs) At least they are afraid they know what he's there for. It's going to cast them out. So instead of going out to never be found again, they have this sort of strange request, cast us into the herd of pigs. So he says, go. It's the only word he says in this account. One little word, go. And the forces of evil that no man could get past in an instant are cast out. They go into the pigs, and the whole herd rushes down the bank into the sea, and they are drowned. (laughs) Not the disciples of little faith, the pigs possessed by the demons. What's going on with the pigs? I I don't entirely know, to be honest. It seems like the demons are, are set on destruction. And so this is some sort of example or sign or their efforts at destroying so the men, the two men are healed. You can imagine that. They're healed and they go back to town. Dads, maybe, finally return home and their kids can hug them for the first time in who knows how long. Wives finally have their possessed husbands back. The town goes out to, to greet this hero. And what do they do? They, look, at, look how the account ends. They beg him to leave their region. Wow. We could speculate. I think it's because they've just lost their livestock. And man, they, they want their pigs. And they get out of here, man. You're going to ruin our livelihood. Let's not get distracted by what they got distracted by, which is the pigs. The story is not about the pigs. The story is about two men whose lives were ruined by the possession of the spiritual forces of evil. And Jesus spoke one word and they fled. The story is the authority of Jesus to rebuke the spirits. And another question comes up. And the question comes from the strangest of places. The question about who Jesus is actually comes from the demons themselves. Look at that second question. Second part of verse 29. 
They say, have you come here to torment us, to torture us before the time? All right, what, what is that? That last little, those last three words, before the time. It's like we're observing these two parties talking to each other, right? Jesus and these demons. And there's apparently been some sort of communication between the two that we're not aware of. And that the demons are somehow aware that the time is coming when the Son of God will torment them. But they thought it wasn't coming yet, right? They said, is it, wait, oh, sorry, wait a second, Jesus, wait, what time is it? Is, it's not time yet. Go back. We, we have more time to torment humanity. It's like when you tell your kids, right? It's time to clean up and come inside. And they say, just five more minutes. <laughs> the demons are saying to Jesus, just give us five more minutes because they know, they know the terrifying promise. This appears on the pages of uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. We read there, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Here's the deal, evil spirits. Your days are numbered. You can only go so far. You only have so long until the Son of God returns to cast you into eternal torment. And they just want a couple more minutes. (laughs) This driving out is a sign that the kingdom is dawning. Here is the work of the king, as the kingdom of peace and glory and gospel spreads, the spiritual forces of evil flee for any cover they can find. You see, Jesus, who is this Jesus? Who has authority to rebuke spirits? This is the justice of God. The evil spirits are getting their just desserts, right? So who is Jesus? He is God's judge. That's the answer to the second question. Who has authority to rebuke spirits? God's judge. And do you notice we get hung up on the timing of justice, don't we? I mean, our question to God is, what's taking so long? The demon's question to God is, we thought we had more time. God will bring his justice about in an evil world to rebuke and cast out his spirits. And he will do that through Jesus, the just and right executor of the judgment of God. Who has the authority to calm storms? It's God's Messiah. Who has the authority to rebuke spirits? God's judge. And then comes the final miracle, the greatest sign of the kingdom to come in this whole chapter. And that's our third question, chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Who has authority to forgive sins? Who has authority to forgive sins? Now, chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Jesus, uh, in these accounts, is sort of ping-ponging back and forth around uh, the Sea of Galilee. He goes through the storm safely to the other side. And now he leaves the eastern, for y'all, the eastern side. Right? And he comes back over to the western side, back where his home is. Uh, back to Capernaum, uh, and he gets there, and apparently he's encountered with a crowd, <laughs> as he usually is. Again, this we learn more about this account of Jesus healing the paralyzed man from Mark's gospel. 
Uh, this is the same story you'll remember from Sunday school uh, where the friends bring the guy on the stretcher and they have to lower him down through the roof because the crowd's so big around Jesus. That Matthew doesn't tell us those details. Same story. So the friends bring Jesus, a man who is paralyzed and lying on a bed. Jesus sees their faith. You see that line in verse 2. And when Jesus saw their faith, their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's quite a line, isn't it? Is that, but is that why they're there? <laughs> and that's not really why they came, I don't think. I think they came because he was paralyzed. It's, it's, it's telling that Jesus sees the faith of the friends... And then he speaks forgiveness to the paralyzed man. Same thing happened with the centurion. Remember, he saw the faith of the centurion, so he heals the centurion's servant. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It sounds like pretty good news, even if it's not what they came uh, to to have done to their friend. It's not good news for everybody, because now we see the reaction of the scribes. Right? We've seen the disciples' reaction. We've seen the demons' reaction. Now we see the scribes' reaction to Jesus. And they say, this man is blaspheming. And Jesus confronts them. He knows their, their thoughts, their evil thoughts. And he asks them a question, verse 5. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Which of those is easier to say? Now you can say both of them. But if you say to a paralyzed person, rise and walk, and they don't, well, you're revealed to be a fool, right? But in this world, there's no proof. If you say to someone, your sins are forgiven, you can't prove it, right? There's no way they can stand up to show that the sins are forgiven. So it's a whole lot easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, because you can't prove it, right? Jesus knows they're thinking this. And so, verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Authority on earth to forgive sins. In order to prove to you that his word is true, he uses the other phrase, the harder of the two phrases. He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. The healing shows the authority of Jesus to forgive. What does this miracle mean? We've already seen miracles of, lots of miracles of healing. We know, we've learned that Jesus can heal with a touch, with a word, with a thought. This healing is given us in particular to show us that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Go back to that accusation of blasphemy. Jesus hasn't said anything about God. How has he blasphemed God? Well, blasphemy... It's a special category of slandering God. You can slander anybody, but when you slander God, it's called blasphemy. What's going on here is that Jesus is claiming to do something only God can do. Right? The reason only God can forgive their sins is because God is ultimately the one that they have sinned against. Okay? When you sin against someone, they, of course, can forgive you. But ultimately, all of our sins are against God. So God alone can look at us and say, your sins are forgiven. I mean, imagine if your brother comes up and punches you in the face, right? I don't, I don't know what brother would ever do something like that. I never did that as a brother. But maybe your brother comes up and hits you. And then your sister walks up and says, don't worry, I forgive you. 
And you're sitting there, you've got a bloody nose, your head's spinning, you're thinking, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I'm the one that gets to forgive you. Not my sister. She can't swoop in here and claim the authority to forgive the offender. That's what the scribes are saying. Jesus, you can't do that. Come on, man. The sin's against God. God alone can pronounce forgiveness. So if Jesus is forgiving sins, what is he telling us? That your sins are against him and that he is God. That he has authority to forgive your sins. Here comes our key word in verse 6. Our key phrase, our key name. But that you may know that the Son of Man. We saw that last week and Jim talked about the connections back to the book of of Daniel. This sort of messianic title of, of power and authority. He has the authority to judge. He also has the authority to forgive. Who is this that can forgive sins? He is God's redeemer. He is God's redeemer. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He alone is the one that can wash the filthy sinner clean. Nothing else and no one else can cleanse and forgive you of your sin and absolve you of your guilt. No one has that authority. No church has that authority. No bishop has that authority. No good works that you do or books that you read or acts that you take or words that you say have authority to forgive you of your sins. Jesus and Jesus alone forgives. How do they respond to this act of authority? Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. You're right, they were afraid. They should be afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Three miracles. Three questions that all display Jesus' divine nature. He has authority over everything. Authority over the storms. Authority over spirits, authority over sins. And our response to this display of his divine nature is humble submission. He demands humble submission, or to use another word, faith. We believe in God's Messiah. We believe in God's judge. We believe in God's redeemer. What does it look like? What does that What does that look like in in application to believe in who Jesus reveals himself to be? What does it look like to have faith in God's Messiah? It means to trust God's plans. It means that even a storm cannot defeat God's plan to save. It means that Messiah must go all the way to the cross, must hang on the cross and bear the weight of sin and be buried in the tomb and rise three days later and ascend under the throne of Of glory. That plan of God, no matter the storms that come, no matter the obstacles that stand in his way, that plan comes to fruition, and we trust God's Messiah. But that plan's not over, is it? You see, God has a people for himself, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He knows the name of his own, of his beloved, and he will preserve each and every one of us to the very end. 
The account is not about the storms in your life, right? It's not a metaphor for storms in your life. It is, however, about the things in your life that cause you to doubt the plan of God. Is this is that Messiah really going to go all the way to the cross and die for his people? Is Jesus really going to bring me, miserable me, all the way unto glory? Only because he has promised to do so. Is he really going to preserve me to the end? Is he really going to return for me and take me unto glory? We go through the hardships of life with faith in God's Messiah by trusting God's plan. How do we have faith in God's judge? This is a little bit harder, isn't it? We need to learn from the mistake of the Gentiles who drove out the executor of God's justice. And instead, what does it mean to humbly submit to him in faith? It means we welcome God's justice. Man, I, I know it's hard to hear, but isn't there comfort in the promise of the punishment of evil? I mean, we have seen in the news horrific tragedies in our nation in the last few weeks. I mean, so, so bad you don't even want to turn on the news sometimes. You don't even want to read any more of these horrific stories. But there is comfort knowing that it's so bad sometimes in this world that no, no earthly justice can ever satisfy, right? It can never bring about enough justice, but God punishes evil. And in the face of such evil, we take comfort in the justice of God. The future justice of God we wish was here now, but we know is coming. We take comfort in that. But sometimes it comes a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? Sometimes welcoming God's justice comes a little bit too close to home. Sometimes it's our pigs, right? Sometimes there's a little bit of discomfort in the present justice of God. It doesn't land quite where we think it should land, right? Or one author says of the, the Gentiles, they preferred pigs to persons. They preferred swine to the Savior. Sometimes justice isn't comfortable. But faith welcomes God's justice wherever and whenever it comes. And then finally, we see what does it look like to have humble submission to God as Redeemer. What does it mean to have faith in God's Redeemer? It means we rest in God's grace. It means we live in a world in which storms rage on the seas. We live in a world in which evil persists, sometimes unchecked. We live in a world in which illnesses, no matter how advanced our medicine is, illnesses still go uncured. But what is offered today? What is offered this very day to needy and desperate sinners? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is offered to every one of us this very hour, this very moment. We enter his kingdom by faith today, resting in the grace of God that comes from his Redeemer who has authority to forgive all our sins. You see, it's a question. It's all a question of authority. Before I have, on a wedding weekend, my big moment of authority, there's a rehearsal 
the night before. And we go through all the different steps. And we sort of practice all the things. And we go through what we're going to say, when we're going to say it, and who's going to stand where, and who's going to look, in which direction, and what person. Right? And then we get to the part where I'm supposed to pronounce. But I don't pronounce it because it hasn't happened yet. Right? I wait. That's got to save that by the authority vested in me. That doesn't come till the next day. You see that the rehearsal is a preview of the kingdom to come. And here in these accounts, we see a preview of the kingdom to come. Do you remember there is a sea in the new heavens and the new earth? There is a sea in Revelation. Do you remember how it's described? You sang about it in the first hymn. It's glassy. What does that mean? It's flat. It's as flat as glass. There's not a ripple of evil. There's not a wave of chaos. There's not a a, a gust of sin over that sea in Revelation. Where are the demons in the new heavens and new earth? Well, they've been cast away and they're tormented in the lake of fire. Where are the paralyzed in the new heavens and new earth? They're not there. There's no pain anymore. They have risen by the power of Jesus and they walk and they leap in glorious faith. You see, Paul tells us in Ephesians that God has raised Jesus from the dead. He has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In this Jesus, the kingdom has dawned. We have it now in the forgiveness of sins and in tastes of his justice and grace. We have the promise that it will come in full because Jesus has authority to bring it about. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, how easily would we have been in that boat? And how easily would you have said to us, so you of little faith? Lord, we believe, we pray this morning, you would help our unbelief. Open our eyes to see you for who you really are. Lord, we repent of keeping you in a box, of keeping you in our minds, in a a bottle, of just needing you for our couple moments throughout the week. And we bow in humble submission before the messianic king of the universe, the judge of the nations, the redeemer of all of God's people. We pray, O Lord, you would give us that gift of faith to believe you more, to rest in your goodness, to welcome your justice, and to trust in your plans. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.